Selectman meeting, please join me in the Pledge of Allegiance. Pledge of Allegiance. Pledge of Allegiance to the flag of the United States of America, to the Republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Thank you. Please note that this meeting is televised. Um, the first item on the agenda is an update from the Eastern Food Pantry. Ken, if you'd like to come up and give us your annual update and introduce yourself, of course. Yeah, I'm uh, Ken from the, uh, I'm the president of the Eastern Food Pantry, uh, one of uh, two founders. Uh, my wife and I found this uh, food pantry, actually it's 40 years this year, 1978. So uh, it's with a loss of our, one of our founders uh, in May. So uh, I just want to uh, report to the town a little bit about that. Uh, the community has been excellent in lieu of that situation with my wife passing. And the uh, family in lieu of flowers asked for donations to be made to the Eastern Food Pantry. As it stands right now, it's just out of $8,000. Wow, wow. So, terrific. and money's still been pouring in, so we're appreciative of that. So, uh, I just want to thank everybody. The town has been super and very supportive. The town officers, uh, the employees of the town, fire and police were very active at that wake for us, and uh, we want to thank everybody for all the help. So to move kind of on, uh, I'd like to uh, mention some of the things that have kind of gone on this year. Uh, the Eastern Women of Today, in, back in March, they ran a fundraiser for, uh, for us, uh, Eastern Food Pantry, the Soup Man, and a Taunton Area Community Table. And they did it down the Eastern Country Club, and uh, they divided the funds up between all of our three organizations, and it was a sizable amount. So we want to thank uh, them for that. The Natural Resource Trust this summer, in, in the name of my wife, ran uh, a food drive for all the summer camps. And they dropped off a lot of food to us uh, this past week. The events this fall uh, for the food pantry is going to be Stuff the Truck. A lot of you have seen the signs around town. That's a big uh, drive for us during the course of the year. Last year, we uh, filled the truck right up at Roche Brothers Plaza. And it's going to be on September 7th, 8th, and 9th. And that's a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. The Rosebuds, that's the weekend after Labor Day. The Halloween Parade again this year. Uh, this is a, a, a program that I started in the uh, centennial year, 275th anniversary, when we did that. And I, I didn't want to see it dissolved. There's not a big cost to it. Uh, just putting the signs out and, and making the arrangements with the police and fire have been excellent with us. and. Uh, we have close to a thousand people going over this year. They collect, last year we got about uh, 50 uh, cases of food that came in from donations for the food pantry. Roche Brothers is the sponsor. They supply all the trick-or-treat candies and the Northeastern Savings Bank comes in, gives out the glow sticks and, and a lot of uh, other things to us and support us every year for the program. This year the annual uh, uh, Race Against Hunger is gonna be held on the 3rd of November. Uh, and it's going to be, it's, it's put on by the Immaculate Conception Church and it held, it'll be held at Borderland uh, State Park. Last year got about $7,000 they raised from that uh, race there. So they're, they're hoping to help us out more, but that's an annual uh, race that uh, we have each year that the Immaculate Conception uh, puts on for us. The Eastern Food Pantry is uh, 
uh, run by totally by uh, unpaid volunteers from uh, 20 uh, week where we have 20 weekly and then about 30 for Thanksgiving, Christmas, and Easter when we do the big distributions when everybody sees the uh, truck out here. And uh, we're thankful for Walmart for donating us that big, that big trailer because of the space we have downstairs is uh, not adequate to take all the foods. Uh, right now, we used to have it over to Doug King's property, but because of all the construction, we've now moved it over to Kilhano Trucking over in uh, Stoughton, and they haul our trailer whenever we want it hauled at no cost. So, and they're involved in our programs all uh, year long. Right now, we're servicing, we have over 300 families that are signed up with us. They don't all come every week. It depends on when they're working on part-time jobs, seasonal jobs. Uh, there's all kinds of situations. But we're running roughly now between uh, 70 to 105 families on a weekly basis. So uh, that, that's where we're at at this time. We are also uh, connected with on Amazon Smile, PayPal, and some of those other organizations. So we get a percentage of the, the, uh, that they do when you buy a product uh, through, through them. Uh, we also direct people to, uh, you know, we just do a food pantry. We actually direct people to other things in town, uh, to the Council on Aging, uh, for uh, transportation, for fuel assistance, and all of those type of things. So we try to work with all the other town departments, especially with the new uh, coordinator for the town. She's been excellent. Uh, Kathy, I believe her name is. Yeah. And uh, we've worked real close with her. Uh, we also have downstairs, it's a small thing, but we have books available down there that people can trade in, like you see a lot of things around town. So if they want to read books, they're free to take also. Uh, we work very closely with the elderly veterans and disabled veterans that need assistance to the food pantry services. Now that uh, we have the, the vans for the council and agent, we will help if there's somebody that's 40 years old and they're on you know, crutches or they can't make it out, uh, they will transport them on Mondays. It's only done on Mondays where they uh, transport them. Uh, started several years ago, uh, volunteers from our food pantry, they, they challenged different uh, uh, groups of sports groups up at the high school to do a collection for the Eastern Food Pantry. The first year we got about 30 some odd uh, bags of food and, and uh, gift certificates that ran up to about uh, uh, a couple of hundred dollars. But right now, the, the whole high school is involved in it, and it's like 130 bags and over 700 and some odd dollars in gift certificates that come to the town because of that event that they, it was started by some uh, students that uh, started when they wanted uh, some time to be for their uh, student council and all that stuff they need to put in time. And then they hung around with us and they still come back even in the summer times to help us out. Uh, we, we also, the question always comes up, what do you do about the people that uh, come in from the other towns? Well, we have a lot of them. We had one today that uh, came, well, didn't come in, but called us. If they come in, we don't let them go without a bag of food, to be honest with you. They will get a bag of food, but that'll be the only one that we'll give them, but at least we'll give them that. And then we direct them to all of the area towns list that we have to help them out. So... Uh, we, that's something that we just feel is we, we need to do. So, uh, and, it, and it doesn't hurt us that bad. The organizations and businesses that we network with now, it, it's getting bigger and bigger, is my brother's keeper, Natural Resource Trust of Easton, 
town offices, the Main Spring of Brockton, St. Vincent's, DePaul, and Taunton, Eastern Council on Aging, Eastern Veteran Services, Stonehill College, uh, the WIC program in Brockton. We work very close with them with foods for mothers and that type of thing. Uh, PetSense, uh, up there uh, by Target, they collect food for us, and we actually have uh, pet foods down there now. We have a pet pantry. So, uh, and then the Eastern KSC has food drives for us. Businesses and organizations that support us, uh, Personal Best, Turkey Brigade, they bring us in over 150 turkey trays a year. Uh, Langwater Farms and Stonehill College produce every week. Uh, if you see our truck pull out of here at four o'clock, no food is wasted. It goes from here over to my brother's keeper and it goes out on their trucks tomorrow so that we don't allow any food to get wasted for anything. So it goes right back into the communities. Stonehill College, uh, like I said, uh, brings us produce. Eastern Chamber of Commerce has been excellent with us, especially with the Taste of Easton. And uh, they also made a sizable donation in uh, lieu of flowers for my uh, wife, which we appreciate. Eastern YMCA does uh, food drives and they knit items. Roach Brothers has stuffed the truck collections and they helped us with all the items you see over the years. They've been super. Uh, Northeastern Savings Bank, they do the you know, food drives and then they also do all our foldouts that you see that we pass out all the time. They give us, a, there's a couple of thousand a year that we use. Bank of Easton now is doing food collections. All the Easton schools, Walmart with a 53-foot trailer, Coheno Trucking, they haul our trailers. Uh, the Lions Club for donations, Easton Grange donations, Vagabonds uh, over there in the industrial park. They do a couple of drives and they come over with about four vehicles of food each year. They do it with their uh, membership. Uh, Bill's Pizza, he's been super, giving us pizzas. And during the, uh, one, one of the, the events that we do, uh, either Thanksgiving, Christmas, or Easter, he gives out a pizza, two large pizzas, a liter of soda, and a Greek salad to all recipients. And that's usually around 100, 150 families. So we're gracious to him. Neighborhood Brigade, birthday bags. We got birthday bags down there that are set up for families that have birthdays. A lot of people don't think about those things, but uh, they can be kind of costly at times, and uh, we go through probably uh, about 50 to 100 a year on those. Uh, many of the ch churches have food collections. The Postal Food Drive, of course, is in May, and then uh, David Howe uh, has been uh, loaning us the truck, and you kind of see it out there now. We're still in the process, but. Uh, David's been excellent with us in supporting it, both he and his wife and all the uh, programs that we do in the town of Easton. One, one thing I will mention, when we do the Halloween parade, we invite Langwater Farm, Stonehill, and uh, the... Uh, I'm trying to think. <laughs> so many things I'm trying to think of at one time here. The uh, personal best, and they come over and they do a demonstration at the uh, Halloween parade and the kickoff, and then they march in the parade. So it's good PR for them uh, because they help us during the course of the year. Langwater brings over their hay wagon, then they gave hay rides. And then, uh, of course, uh, Stonehill has that van that they you've seen down there. I don't know if you've seen it, it's so all let it out. They take that over to Brockton and real low prices, they pull them back of the courthouse downtown on Main Street, that new courthouse. And the people over there can get food at real reasonable prices and it's set up like a stand inside of it. It's quite, it's quite the vehicle. The students uh, last year started uh, challenging all of the students. At the end of the year, there's always money left over 
from their uh, food cards, and they'll ask them, would you like to donate to that to the Eastern Food Pantry? So last year they did, and they went out and bought case lots of food and brought it over to the Eastern Food Pantry. There's two young new students that are going to be there for three years, and they're going to be doing it each year and enlarging it this year. This was on, that was only done in two weeks' time, so this year they've been working on it for quite a while. So we want to thank them for uh, all of the uh, work that they've done over the years. So uh, I don't know if you have any questions. Oh, well, the other thing that we helped with, uh, you'll see these box tops that uh, come out, that people cut off of all the foods and stuff. Mm -hmm. Well, because we have boxes down there and we can cut them off without just damaging the foods, we uh, supplied one year, raised over $2,800 for the Eastern School Department in, food, in, the, in those coupons. So, uh, and, and it's, you know, it's just something that's available. You can't go in the supermarket and do it, but you can down to the food pantry. <laughs> they don't like you to do that in the supermarket. <laughs> so there again, I just want to thank uh, all the community of town of Easton for supporting the Easton Food Pantry. We're one of the few that opens every week and you can come in and pick up food every week. The other cities and towns, it's, they're open every week. You can come in once, twice, or three times a month, and that's it. You, you have to get a ticket to come in that time. We work with St. Vincent de Paul and Taunton. If they got a warehouse down there, if you come to the Eastern Food Pantry, uh, you don't have to belong to the Macroception Church or any of those. You can go down there on Wednesdays. They're open four times a month between five and eight o'clock, and people can go down and get perishable foods down there. We give them all the information for that. So, uh, and there's also clothing down there that they can pick out also. So basically, this is where we're at now, and uh, we, we're. Moving along pretty good, and uh, we've got a lot of a lot of help and volunteers for the community. It's like I said, it's all volunteers, and it's taken the whole community to really uh, run the food pantry, and that's why it's success that it is. Thank you, Ken. Um, any questions or comments for Ken from the board? Um, I just want to say, you know, Ken, and I don't know how often you hear it, but your your dedication is really outstanding. It's remarkable, and I'm sure I speak for everybody. Uh, there's people that talk a lot and although you're doing a lot of talking tonight you're a doer and uh you know it's uh it's it's great it really is so well, we appreciate this, it this town has always been a caring town uh from the time when we came in people some of the people i mentioned to my kids i said cheapest i remember when my son had croup one night this is one example and this is the fire department police department <laughs> we used to have the old when i moved to town we had the old brick fire station police station down there and <laughs> down in the back of the center of town and the fire station was where the children's museum was I used to spend time over there having lunch with some of the firefighters but one time my son had a croup in the middle of the night and back then they had the station wagons with the cots in them and that's the, the police were the were the <laughs> ones that took you to the hospital and I had two kids home and I had another one in the uh, that ended up uh, going to the hospital my wife went with them she's over the hospital and they said when you when you get through you call us back and we'll come back and pick you up which they did so I mean there's situations like this way back in history <laughs> since that we've been in this town for for uh, 54 years so we've we've had a lot of experience in town here and we've seen this town really grow and uh, but everybody in the blizzard everybody knows everybody pulled together in that blizzard and uh, that, that was really super 
you know. Well, we really appreciate everything that you do and all of your outreach to the community. Um, I just want to mention something from your website if people are asking. Some of the kinds of foods that you like to have are cereal, pasta, pasta sauce, soup, baked beans, canned vegetables, canned fruit, tuna, or other meat and fish, and peanut butter and jelly. So um, if people want to bring that to the Stuff the Truck in Roach Brothers the weekend after Labor Day, uh, you have quite a system in there. I've had the pleasure of helping out and uh, bring bags of that stuff, and it won't go to waste. So. Yeah. Well, a lot of times Roach Brothers decides their flyer that everybody sees for the, for the weekend that we have the Eastern Food Pantry. Uh, a lot of times they've done for two years is the items that you just mentioned, they put on sale for those two days. So the residents not only do well, they're on top of it, but the, so doesn't the food pantry. So it's been, it's been a big, big, big success, you know? And a lot of scout troops are getting involved with it this year, so that makes me feel good, you know? Well, thank you very much, Ken. Thank we you, appreciate Ken. you coming right. in. Thank you, Ken. Thank, thank you, so you. Much. Have a nice evening. Next, we have a one-day um, entertainment license for Presset Juicery for their grand opening celebration. I don't think anyone's here from that. Um, Josh Katz has applied for a one-day entertainment license. He's going to have an outdoor disc jockey for a grand opening celebration at Presset Juicery to be held on Sunday, September 9th, with a rain date of Sunday, September 16th, from 12 p.m. to 4 p.m. And... Uh, you recommend approval? Yeah, we actually just checked the licensing portal. No detail is required. Okay, great. Um, would anybody like to make a so, motion? So moved. Second. Second. Any questions? All in favor? <clears throat> Unanimous. Ding. Okay. Um, do we want to skip ahead to the... The diff presentation? Yeah. Uh, sure. I just want to try to get some of the people to be able to leave early. We can do uh, some of the contract sure. words after that. Okay. So while Stephanie is setting up, uh, I'd ask Stephanie to come in and just give the board a brief update on uh, the town's district improvement financing project. Uh, which is now underway. Uh, this is something that town meeting funded this May, uh, looking at um, a pretty exciting uh, uh, possible financial option for some infrastructure investments in the Five Corner sewer area. So. Okay, thank you. Um, Stephanie Danielson, the Director of Planning and Economic Development. And as Connor just said, I, I think you're all aware that we, the town is exploring the feasibility of using district improvement financing to help offset the cost of the sewer construction project at the Five Corners. Um, I'm here to provide a brief overview of how a DIF financing program works, um, what the steps are for actually establishing a DIF district, and um, what the steps are that we're taking to actually conduct our feasibility study. And then what actions would need to be taken if the recommendation coming out of the feasibility study is positive. So first, um, district improvement financing comes out of legislation, Mass General Law 40Q, and what it enables communities to do 
is to pledge future revenues based on new growth in a district to fund infrastructure improvement projects. And again, it, it's based on the new growth in the district that would not have occurred otherwise if the um, improvements had not been made to the district. So this is um, this little slide here just kind of shows you it's a, a stepped process. One of the things that it does for a community is it, it communicates out to the world at large that you've identified a district that is targeted for growth. And it also, and I'll talk a little bit more about this um, when I get into further how you establish a DIF, but it also tells you what the goals are for that district. Um, it helps to attract new private investment, so you actually realize the growth that you're anticipating and projecting. And it does that by capturing new tax revenues from the new growth. So uh, one of the questions I like to answer right from the start is how does the DIF generate and capture that revenue? Well, the first thing you do is you determine what are the current um, or the original assessed values of the properties in the district based on the current use of those properties or allowed uses. So you capture that. So for example, today, your property taxes paid on the original assessed value of $1 million would be $16,210. You'd capture that. That would go into the general fund. Post-development um, that is based on the investments that you've made in the district that would allow growth that wouldn't have otherwise occurred if you had not made that investment. And in this case, I think everyone understands that growth in the Five Corners District has been impeded by the lack of wastewater treatment and the limitations on um, having on-site subsurface soil absorption systems. So if you realize $2 million in um, post-development value, again, as a result of the infrastructure improvements, the new growth in that year um, might be $1 million. So the base value that you captured at the beginning of the DIF process for those properties at the current today's use might be $1 million. But then the new development is an additional new growth revenue of $1 million. So that DIF revenue year one you'd be able to capture up to $16,210 at the current tax rate for, um, to pledge towards the DIF program and to pay the um, infrastructure costs. So the steps to establishing a DIF in general, uh, again, you want to define what the limits of the district are. The first slide I had up here actually showed the sewer district for the five corners, and that's uh, the district that we'll be starting with. The town has contracted with Camoyne Associates. They are an economic development consulting firm who has expertise in helping communities evaluate whether this type of funding tool would work for them and is appropriate. Um, so they will be reviewing what we believe the district should be, and they'll look at the existing uses and then projected uses, and they may suggest some refinements to that. But at this point, that's what we're starting with. 
Then you assess the feasibility. So you need to have an understanding of what the future growth could look like, and then you need to put a value to that. Kamoin Associates is going to help us with that. Then you actually develop your financing program, and that financing program identifies the type of capital improvements the town feels they need to make in order for that new growth to occur in that, that district. So right off, we know that the sewer construction project is one of the infrastructure improvements that you want in that program. When you define your program, because you have to go to town meeting and get a vote, and get approval, you want to make sure you include any other infrastructure improvements you may want to finance with those new revenues. So our program probably, if again, we, the town decides to move forward, will it likely include other infrastructure projects. Um, but the primary goal at this point in time is to help offset the costs of the sewer construction. After determining, and, and so when you do that, you project out, you understand what you're going to include in your program, what those costs are, you determine if that projected new growth really is going to be suffi sufficient enough that it makes sense to go through the process of establishing the DIF. If you decide to do that, you need to hold some public hearings. Um, generally, for us, it, for Easton, it could be through the usual article process where an article is drafted for the DIF district and then is reviewed and discussed at Board of Selectmen meetings. Um, the town may want to, and it's highly suggested, to have public hearings and meetings where people can learn more about the, dis the DIF district and build support for that. And then you present it to town meeting for a vote. So um, just a few things. It's nice to know, um, you know what DIF is. It's an economic development financing tool. It helps make funds available that might not otherwise have been available to fund your projects. It's locally designed and locally approved. When the legislation was first passed, you needed to get approval for your DIF at the state level. They amended that and changed that so it occurs all at the local level. We don't need to go for state approval. It can be combined with other grants um, and public-private partnerships and any other borrowing. So at this point in time, um, the town voted at annual town meeting to appropriate funding for the project of $13.5 So you've already voted to appropriate those funds. You want to hopefully offset some of those costs. We applied for a MassWorks grant for $3 million. Um, those applications were due on the 10th of August. So if that funding is made available, that can be used in, con in conjunction with the DIF financing. Um, it also doesn't preclude public-private partnerships. Um, the town has really benefited from several public-private partnerships. And in fact, the one with Avalon is what allowed Easton to move up the schedule for constructing phase two of the Five Corner Sewer District. Avalon made a payment that allowed us to connect to Mansfield, bring that Forest Main down, and um, again, helped cover some of the expense. The fact that you establish a DIF district does not um, preclude similar types of partnerships going forward. What it isn't is a new tax. It's not a tax rate increase or a special assessment. 
it's not guaranteed revenue. Um, if you don't see the growth, then that, that money is, is not going to be available. But again, that's part of the reason the feasibility study is being conducted to um, attain a high level of confidence that the type of growth the town would expect to see is actually feasible. And it's not a reduction in current general fund revenues because what you're looking at is the growth in the district. And again, you would pledge up to um, a certain, up to the full amount of what new growth revenue would be. So the Five Corners Diff Feasibility Study is actually underway. We signed the contract with Kamoin um, towards the end of July, I believe it was. And they've already started doing market analysis. They've had meetings internally to kick off. Um, but the very, one of the most important steps, and the first step, is really developing what the likely future development scenarios are. And this was a requirement that we put in our uh, request for qualifications and the scope of work was to actually do a charrette, vis a visioning charrette, to get input from the community and define that. Um, interestingly, I guess not all communities do that, but I don't know how you project what the future might look like if you don't have a session like that. Um, so they will conduct a charrette. You all should have received an invitation to that session. It's September 15th. It's a Saturday. It's going to be from 10 to 1 o'clock. It's kind of condensed. We went through the agenda today, and we're going to accomplish a lot in a short period of time. But I think everyone will enjoy it. Um, everyone will have an opportunity to talk about what they feel um, the district should look like into the future and what growth should look like there. And then that information is going to be gathered. It's going to be validated against market analysis that Kamoin is currently in the process of doing. And then from that, the, the vision will be created. And then they'll take that and they'll project out what the growth revenue could be based on that vision. Um, they anticipate creating at least two scenarios from, from that, those sessions and that information gathering. Um, at the same time, they're establishing a baseline of current property values. They're working with the town assessor to get that information. That's based on just information that is readily available. Um, then the next step is you have to conduct the infrastructure review and gap analysis. So again, we know that we're looking at the sewer infrastructure, but there might be streetscape improvements that the district could benefit from and, and um, promote additional growth if it were there. So sidewalks um, that would allow people to walk the full district and amongst the new communities and some of the development that we're anticipating. Um, Streetlights similar to the, in streetscape improvements similar to what were done in the downtown district a few years ago. So that will all be identified and prices and values will be put to that. They'll be forecasting out the future revenues and then based on what their determination is on those f the future revenues, the cost of the infrastructure improvements, they'll issue a report to the town with a recommendation whether the town should proceed or not. So, and again, um, it wasn't up there but if, the determination is made to proceed, then we'll start preparing for town meeting and, and preparing to build support. 
So the timeline currently, as I said, the market analysis is underway. They are interviewing four stakeholders from the district that we identified. They have those all scheduled and they'll be, getting, be starting those tomorrow. The Visioning Charette is on September 15th and it's going to be held, and I'm not going to say this in the right order, I think it's the Richardson Olmsted Elementary School, um, but it is the elementary school over at the complex. Um, we have sent emailed invitations to the various boards and committees, either for full board participation, and some boards were seeking representation. And postcards have been mailed out to all the businesses and residents in the proposed district. We'll also be making follow-up calls. I'll probably be going out and visiting the businesses just to make sure people got their postcards and to make sure we're getting good attendance at the charrette. As I mentioned, Kamoyne's working with the assessor on the baseline values. That's ongoing. The infrastructure review and gap analysis they've started, we met with Dave Field a couple of weeks ago. They plan, Kamoyne plans on beginning the revenue forecasts in September and they are planning on issuing their report and recommendation on October 21st. I think that's, that's Questions? Um, I, I, I'm sorry, I, I just have one question. When you guys are, uh, overall, I, I, I don't have any problem with the whole thing, but when you are formulating visions for like the different properties and scenarios, are, are, the, are the property owners involved in having some feedback on the whole situation or? The, all the property owners have been invited. And, and again, that, those are the folks I'm going to try to be calling out to and then actually going out and meeting with. We did a, a site walk of the district with Kamoyne a couple of weeks ago. And when we were out there, Neil Levine, who owns McGuire's and the Foundry, just happened to be coming in. Um, we were at that plaza, the McGuire's Plaza. And I took the opportunity, of course, said hello, and took the opportunity of inviting him over and introducing him to Kamoyne. And um, he, he was effusive about interest in expressing what he thinks the district needs. Um, he was excited to hear that the town was doing this and wanted to learn more. So we extended him an invitation right on the spot. But yes, they are being invited and their input. And, and again, the stakeholders we've identified are all business owners in the district. Okay. Oh, now, are any of those properties going to have, uh, currently have homes on them? And do you anticipate any pushback from people who are in that area that have homes currently where this might So affect. you're talking about single family residences yeah, in yeah. the district and people who might be concerned with zoning changes and yeah, yeah, um, yeah. the they have been invited to talk and the plan is not to change all that residential zoning to other zoning. Um, you you'll recall that this past May at annual town meeting, the town voted to adopt the compact neighborhood zoning overlay district mm -hmm. that applies to the foundry site and the abutting properties. And that is for more dense residential development. Right. Um, there's a developer who's actually purchased the property 
and is likely to purchase the abutting property and he's going to take advantage of that zoning. Um, so in, there may be zoning changes that get discussed. There may be recommendations that come out of the charrette and the visioning that recommend mixed use development in, I would expect more on the commercial areas the, where right, you have the two acres. I, I don't foresee that there is going to be a lot of push to convert the existing residential single-family homes to something different. Well, of course, none of that would could ever be compulsory. This is really right. Um, but we do bring them in, and we invite yeah, everyone I, to participate in these things. I think the only my only concern with it really is, and maybe a lot of the homeowners are probably thinking, "Well, Jesus, if my property's worth more, I can sell it off and make money, and that's fine." But I just I just would hate to see a, you know, a, some sort of a nonconformity be created. You know, if somebody wanted to do something to their house, and then they have to go get special permits because it's no longer zoned that way. And right, you know, but right. I, mean, that's I, I think you know, if if someone asked me what my vision is it's that the two commercial nodes on either end that bookend the district, there's some real opportunity for redevelopment there. You have some aging plazas, you have a lot of space that's probably underutilized, and there's a lot more you could do there, and it would ge generate additional revenue. And then you have your residential areas. You have a lot of green space. There, you, you have the old pond and the new pond, conservation areas, there's conservation land to the south. Um, the developer that's talking about the foundry site has talked about maybe connecting, um, creating some pathways to those conservation areas that are south of him. So it, it's almost like that area is the, the res, residential area and that is kind of the glue for the two bookends. I, I mean, I agree with you, I mean, that whole area is a lot of potential and it's been kind of a little bit of a dead zone. I just don't want to see it turn into Route 1, that's all. That's my, and and, yeah. and that, sure. I think, I, sure Craig think I wouldn't be, I, I wouldn't, I don't think anyone would take issue with my saying that is not what I think anyone we've been talking to um, right. wants to see. Right. Fair enough. Stephanie, some might say, why don't we just do it and build it and then when the revenues increase, use that to pay it off. And I just want to highlight, I think, a little bit of what the DIF brings to the table, which is the pledge um, that provides certainty and assurity to uh, developers so that we work, uh, there's a better opportunity to work together uh, because they have that quote-unquote pledge of the DIF um, that it sets. So I just wanted to point out that, that nuance that I've been asked in the past. That, that's a very good point. And when I was talking with one of Easton's residents, who also um, does development in other communities, that's one of the things he pointed out, that if you want to attract developers to these areas, like, like the Quisic Commercial District as well, that the, the town has to show they're making an investment, and that will attract people. Mm -hmm. so, thank you for bringing that up. Absolutely. And I think it's good to, to look at the numbers when you have an outlay of money on what something's going to cost and you see what the value of it is and how that investment is going to pay off over what period of time. I think it uh, is very reassuring to know that we, we're making the right development decisions in certain strategic areas of town. Yeah. I, I think it also helps, and I, I probably should have had this in my notes, I think it also helps when we're seeking funds from other sources like the state and the MassWorks grants to show the investments that we're making, that the town is making, mm -hmm. into these economic um, target areas. 
So this is a is this a fairly new program, Stephanie? It's actually been around for a little while. Um, I talked with the deputy planning director in Quincy. Um, he had a lot of information for me. And they've been doing uh, DIF for over 12 years. And in fact, they have a DIF, and now they're, they're actually establishing another DIF district. Um, the state approval kind of made it a little bit unattainable for smaller communities. And people weren't talking with smaller communities about how they could use it as well as a tool. So it's been felt that it's been underutilized. And mass development was actually contracted by the state to develop tools for smaller communities to use in helping understand the program and then establishing their own districts. Well, I just want to thank you for being on top of that. These things come, come about, and um, I know that you're very active in the planning community statewide, and you go to a lot of these um, you know, trade shows and, and uh, you know, opportunities for education, and that's the result of it is that we get some of these really good opportunities brought back to Easton that help us. So thank you very much for finding that out and discovering it for us, Stephanie. You're welcome. You're welcome. It's really fun to be able to bring some of this back. Thank you. Thank you, Stephanie. Thank, Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you. All right. Should we do the contract awards first and just knock them out? Or? Uh, yeah, I would just I would revert back to the normal order at this point. All right. So next we'll go to um, the proposed contract award from Alanson Heath and Company, the audit contract for fiscal year ending June 30th, 2018. <coughs> Finance Director, Town Accountant. Um, this is this is a one-year contract with Melanson Heath to do the audit for the fiscal year that just ended. Uh, we recently had a three-year contract with them, which expired with a 2017 audit. Uh, the audit committee um, has met and discussed this and recommended that we do a one-year contract. And during this fiscal year, they will seek proposals from audit firms for a three-year contract. Anyone have any questions? So there is an increase in this contract, Wendy? Um, it's a it's a basically a thousand dollars, but there is also an additional component to this contract for this year. Uh, once every three years, there's new recommendations that student activity funds uh, be audited once every three years by an outside independent auditor, and um, so that includes that in this contract, and the portion for that is six thousand dollars. Um, will come from uh, school funds. Okay, great. So can I get a motion um, to award the contract to Melanson Heath and Company? So moved. And Second. Do we need to put the dollar amount in the? You don't amount? have to. Okay. Any questions? All in favor? Unanimous. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Wendy. Um, the next one is proposed contract award with Minuteman Truck for the Water Division Utility Truck and Plow. Uh, sure. So attached in your packet, you have a memo submitted by uh, Operations Manager Jack Marsh um, requesting approval for a contract for um, the uh, Water Division Utility Truck for the Plow. This is part of the Water Division's approved fiscal 2019 capital budget. Uh, I recommend approval. Okay. Any questions? 
Would somebody like to make a motion to award the uh, contract to Minuteman Truck not to exceed $47,879? So moved. Second. All in favor? Unanimous. Great. Next one is the proposed contract award uh, Minuteman Truck for the Water Division Hydraulic Service Truck. Sure. So again, you have a memo in your packet from Operations Manager Jack Marsh. Uh, requesting approval of uh, contract water 2019-02 to Minuteman Truck. Uh, this is for a second uh, vehicle for the water division that was, again, part of their approved capital budget for a special town meeting. Uh, sorry, for annual town meeting. I, I recommend approval. Any questions? None. Would somebody like to make a motion to award this contract to Minuteman Truck for uh, value not to exceed $145,231? So moved. Second. All in favor? Unanimous. Okay. And the next one is the proposed contract award to Woodard and Curran Five Corners Needs Area uh, Final Design and Construction Services. Sure, so attached in your packet, you have a memo submitted by Dave Field. Uh, Dave is recommending award uh, of contract, uh, an amendment, I believe, actually, um, for engineering services for an existing contract the town has with Woodard and Curran, uh, who we've been working with on uh, the engineering services associated with all of our uh, sewer projects over the past few years. Um, contract has been amended twice uh, through the first phase of Five Corner Sewer, which was completed in 2016. Uh, this proposed contract includes a final uh, engineering and design services as well as construction administration, traffic controls, um, all those fun things we're going to be working on in the Five Corners District starting next year uh, for the uh, second phase of that sewer construction project. Uh, okay. I recommend approval. Any questions? Connor, I noted that the contract checklist in this particular packet that I have is blank. Is that because we already have an existing contract that satisfies the requirements as set forth? Or is there one that's available that is? The hard copy is probably uh, filled out. For example, if you look, some of the attachments that are listed on that checklist are actually in this, but we received this contract for a packet as a PDF. Okay. Um, so the hard copy should have the appropriate uh, sign-offs by Dave Field. Excellent. Uh, for example, the Certificate of Corporate Authority is included in there on page 85, uh, showing the appropriate signatory for uh, a contract of this dollar amount with Woodard and Curran. That's one of the required forms. Mm -hmm. Hey, would somebody like to make a motion to award uh, this contract to Woodard and Curran for final design and construction services not to exceed $1,640,000? So moved. Second. All in favor? Unanimous. Thank you. Next, uh, the Wastewater Fiscal Sustainability Plan report. Sure. So as the board may recall, recently the town received a grant, I believe in the amount of $32,000, uh, that was applied towards a uh, $40,000 required project that was completed on behalf of the town by Woodard and Curran. It's a Wastewater Fiscal Sustainability Plan and report. This is a required uh, uh, report that has to be produced by the town uh, demonstrating our uh, planning um, for the fiscal management of our sewers uh, as part of our uh, application for the Mass Clean Water Trust State Revolving Fund uh, money that we leverage to build these sewers. Part of those requirements is that uh, the town's engineers, in this case Woodard and Curran, brief the Board of Selectmen at a public meeting. So we have Jeff Stearns here to do that right now. 
Come on up, Jeff. Hello, my name is, uh, Jeff, my name is uh, Jeff Stearns with Water and Card. Um, as, as Connor uh, mentioned, there was a $32,000 grant that was awarded to the town of Easton relative to the water infrastructure and asset management. Water and Karn prepared a pretty comprehensive report, which I brought with you today, uh, today that we're very uh, proud of, that actually uh, inventories all of the critical assets with, within the community. That's all the buildings, uh, all of the manholes, pump stations, pipelines, uh, etc., and actually puts a 10-year plan, a budget plan to it, r relative to any re replacement of those features. Uh, we've done that for the Northeastern Village project, for the um, for the school system, as well as any other sewer infrastructure that is within that has been built. Uh, it's a pretty comprehensive plan. It talks about uh, loss of uh, loss of failure and critical failure of those components and what would happen if any of those components have failed. So it maps that all. Um, all the information is in a GIS system. So that information was provided to the town at our training session on June, June 22nd. So all that information is there. Um, and, the, and I could go into detail what, what's actually included in this, but it's a pretty comprehensive report which talks about the uh, capacity and condition of the system, the level of service goals and where the system is relative to, those, to that level of service. Uh, about the risk, like I mentioned, like uh, like critical failure, um, and um, talks about um, um, a capital improvement plan for all of the all, all of that infrastructure, a 10-year plan. So there's budgets assigned to the Northeastern Village, to the plant, to the school system that people should review and look at and take into account into future appropriations. Um, and this is just the beginning of a document. Um, it's a live document. It's not necessarily this is it. Uh, we have other projects going on. There's phase two. There is the Cuisa project. So over time, all of those other assets need to come into this plan, and all of the infrastructure needs to be mapped, uh, and you, you should have a capital asset program re relative to th include that into, into your capital asset management program as well. So it's a very comprehensive document. Um, I, I definitely the DPW is going to use it, but hopefully other departments use it as well too. Okay. So I suppose this is another one of those things that helps us with our bond rating um, by being able to capture this and measure our risk and be prepared to address it, right? Correct. Um, and also just to mention, you mentioned the GIS. Um, for people that might be watching that aren't sure what that is, that's a mapping system. So our DPW would be able to uh, map our whole sewer infrastructure now, including manholes. And it's already mapped. Uh, it's in, in GIS. Um, you could click on uh, structure, uh, know what, where the structure is, when it was uh, installed. Um, you know, it's, it's a full, it's the start of a business intelligence, um, basically. You've got asset management, you've got financing, you've got, you know, that whole suite's the start of it. So when I first started, uh, we were asked to support funding for a GIS system and somebody to manage that GIS system, and it really has um, done remarkable things for us. Most people know it by when we had it to shovel out the fire hydrants and they can go on and interactively say they shoveled out a fire hydrant. But it also, if there's a water main break or there's a, a problem in the infrastructure, um, the DPW knows where to get to that right away and where that's coming from in, in the street. So. Sure. Um, you know, we're very lucky to have that information and have somebody that can run that department for us. Not every town has that. Any other questions, comments? 
do we have to vote on this, Connor, or is this? No, is it's uh, it's just an informational uh, requirement that Jeff be here. Uh, the board can ask questions. That I inform everyone that it's available, that it's here, that the training session has occurred. Um, and basically, with the SRF funding, this is a requirement uh, that this management plan be put together. So in order to receive funding for the Cuisa project, the Five Corners project, this is a requirement that uh, every town have a, uh, a, an asset management plan for that, tip, that infrastructure that you're requesting funding for. Okay, great. Well, thank you very much. We appreciate you coming tonight. Yeah, you're welcome. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Next up is um, the Samarek Communication Regional Dispatch. Sure. So uh, as the board is aware, back in late July, there was a uh, four or five board actually meeting of the four boards of selectmen of Easton, Norton, Mansfield, Foxborough, as well as the Samarek Board of Directors, which are the town administrators of each of those communities. Uh, for our guest tonight, uh, the executive director of uh, Southeastern Massachusetts Regional Emergency Communications Center to give an update uh, to the four boards of selectmen on the four towns progress on the implementation of our intermunicipal agreement uh, to regionalize our emergency dispatch services. So the board of selectmen in Easton along with those other four communities back in early 2017 executed that intermunicipal agreement. Uh, basically trying to pursue best practice of regionalizing uh, our dispatch resources um, between these four communities and uh, we've been uh, meeting regularly multiple times a month uh, since then um, and uh, Rob uh, Verdone joined us as the executive director of SEMREC in November of last year as an exceptional resume in emergency management uh, and he's been kind of the tip of a spear on moving this forward. So. He gave a great update uh, in Mansfield, and I asked if he would be willing to just come and do a quick uh, update in Easton in case anyone uh, locally wanted to also catch that. So, Rob. Good evening, thanks Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm gonna try and give you an abbreviated version of the briefing I gave in Mansfield. Um, I don't wanna cut too much out, but I, I don't wanna repeat it too much. Um, so we are the Southeast Massachusetts Regional 911 District, and what that means is that we are a separate uh, municipal body formed under Chapter 6A of the Mass General Laws. Um, in 2017, the district received a $1.5 million grant from the 911 surcharge monies to, to develop this regional district and the regional communication center. In November 2017, I joined, joined the team. Uh, this is a fantastic team of some of the most um, high-level collaborators and public safety professionals I've ever met with. The, the chiefs from your town have been exceptional in, in uh, fostering this and moving it forward. Um, it's really unheard of in these kind of um, projects. In uh, 11 2017, when I came on board, the district identified a possible secondary candidate location for SEMREC, the Emergency Communication Center. Um, in Foxborough, it's a, a, it's a underutilized uh, former AT&T long line site, which is a Cold War air, uh, relic building. And recently, we just received back from our engineer team that that building is highly advantageous, and the, the board has chosen to designate that as the most advantageous building for this project. So a little bit about the district. Like I said, it's form pursuant to Master General Law 6A. Uh, we're a public employer, public body, just like a town would be. So any, any employees we take on is eligible if they're current public employer, a public employee in the, the Commonwealth, uh, they'd retain their retirement and we'd offer 
many of the same benefits as, as it down would. <coughs> we have enumerated powers to adopt the name, establish a seal, construct inside the 911 center, and other various laws to administer the, uh, administer the district. Uh, we have a robust set of programs that we're, we're implementing or improving or just carrying on. Uh, one of the, the newest ones is called the Next Generation 911 System. I don't know if we have time to, to watch the videos. It's a, Good, Madam Chair. Yeah, maybe not maybe not all of them, but if you okay. do a couple of them sure. and um, and if we I know that the this full presentation is already on ECAT that Correct. was in Mansfield. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe we could get the presentation and set that up also on ECAT separately. Sure. And I could uh, I could post it on my website as well. Oh good. Is it on the SEMREC website? It's not yet, but I, I'll have it there by the end of the night. I just okay. received a copy of it. Terrific. Um, so this the next generation 911 system is the next phase technologically in the 911 system. Back in the 50s, 911 as a as a number was established as the nationwide emergency number. So it's just about 50 years old uh, this year, it turned 50. Um, through the past 50 years, it's evolved several times into enhanced 911 or E911, giving more robust capabilities, essentially a, a more robust caller ID and geolocation feature. Um, and the next step is this next generation 911, which brings a whole new suite of capabilities and enhancements. So. I don't know if we have sound. Uh, hope so. We're, we'll for find. more than four decades, the public has turned to 911 for help during emergencies. And we've always been there. Basic 911 technology is essentially the same today as it was 40 years ago. But along the way, we've made some enhancements to the system to accommodate new technologies like cell phones, location tracking, and now texting to 911. But that's getting harder to do. Technology is constantly evolving, now faster than ever before. And as the world adapts to keep up, it's our duty to keep up as well. Why? Because people expect 911 to work no matter what. They assume that they can reach 911 via text, picture, or video messaging and they expect to get help quickly from any device at any time. It's time to make that concept a reality. Next Generation 911 transitions us from yesterday's technology to a faster, more flexible, resilient, and scalable system, enabling 911 to keep up in the future. So what is NG911? In short, it's an IP-based system that allows information to flow seamlessly across the 911 system from the public to first responders and beyond. It's much more than just new computers. NG911 is an evolving system of hardware, software, standards, policies, and training that will eventually lead to safer, faster, and more informed responses. It provides improved interoperability with first responders, sharing life-saving information instantly. It's the most efficient backup plan to make sure all calls are answered when there's a call overload power outage, or a natural disaster. It's better services to the public and more ways to access help through 911, such as text, video, automatic crash notification, and more. And emergency responders say it will provide the most accurate information about the situation, allowing them to not only save lives, but to do their jobs more effectively. Saving lives, gaining efficiencies, adapting to the future. That's what NG911 does. NG911 is fundamentally about sharing information with others. That can only happen with a plan. 
Formal transition plans address governance and standards development, update existing laws, standardized systems and training, and identify funding options. Many states have already developed plans and are adopting components of NG911. Working together, each state, region, county, and city has the power to determine how to make its transition to NG911. So what's your role? First responders, legislators, and 911 system employees will each play a role in making NG911 happen. Through collaboration and education, we can ensure this new system will best serve our communities. Learn more about how you can help by getting involved in the conversation about next generation 911 today. All right, so that's a brief overview of what NG911 is on the national level and a uh, high level overview of it. Um, so the Commonwealth of Massachusetts just finished out their uh, full deployment, statewide deployment of NG911. Um, that means that the capability of NG911, the new software and the pipeline to get all that data to the, the public safety answering points or PSAPs, the 911 centers, is there and established. Um, right now that makes the telecommunicators jobs a little more efficient, a little easier, but it also it creates the pipeline to just throw so much more information and saturate the, the 911 centers. Uh, that that includes texting to 911, which is being uh, beta tested right now throughout the Commonwealth. And once that's approved, which is within the next year, hopefully, uh, pictures to 911 and videos to 911 are, are, are tied to that uh, SMS or text messaging. And that really changes the dynamic of how we as a 911 center process and receive information. Uh, if you can imagine how much information we get from just a phone call, when you get a video, how are we, uh, di how are we digesting that video? Uh, gleaning it for information and getting that information out to the first responders. Um, data management and storage requirements, it just, it, it turns into a very complex thing, all for the benefit of the public. The other thing that, um, before we get into wireless direct, uh, a system that was just recently deployed is the next generation clearinghouse through Rapid SOS. And what that does is makes a tel uh, telephone a caller, when they call 911, if they have certain devices, iPhones and modern devices, it gives the 911 center the ability to um, automatically grab data off the cell phone. Um, let's say someone calls and they, they're not talking, we have an open carrier, but the device is seeing an ambient air temperature of over 200 degrees. Maybe we can assume that there might be a fire. Um, we're pulling different location information from Wi-Fi hotspots and uh, Bluetooth beacons and those kinds of things. So it really enhances the amount of data that we can uh, kind of pick up into the, the center. The other thing is that with Next Generation 911, we talk about GIS. That, uh, GIS is the core of Next Generation 911, the mapping system. We are now able to, when someone calls 911, the GPS and the GIS functionality of that system is robust enough to say that um, we can, that the caller is in a certain town and we can route those calls to the public safety answering point servicing that town, um, which I can explain now. So right now, if you call 911, you have an emergency. Let's say it's for a car accident, car fire, medical emergency, or any emergency at all. Uh, your phone's geolocated and routed to what's called a wireless center in the state. This, the wireless center is the state's answer to a rapidly progressing technology like cell phones that we couldn't deploy a solution to fast enough. So in years past, every single 911 call that came in through a cell phone was answered at a wireless center so that a person can fill in where technology is filling in now and say, where are you, what town are you in, get that data. And it's not as granular, it's not as precise, especially if you have a, a, a non-vocal caller. 
So that, that wireless center telecommunicator or dispatcher screens the call. They say 911, where's your emergency? Because it's one 911 system. They gather as much information as they can and they route it to what they hope is the correct 911 center. Most of the times it's correct. Sometimes it gets, the, the lines get blurry and they, they go to the wrong center, but it goes to a local 911 center. That local 911 center telecommunicator reinterrogates the caller. Um, so we basically start over. So they say 911, where's your emergency? And they go into a little bit more of a um, in-depth questioning. They diagnose the issue. They determine what resources need to be deployed, police, fire, EMS, or all three. Um, and then they notify those assets. That's kind of where the 911 system stops and the local dispatch operation begins. Um, and this is where the regional center also plugs in. So currently, if Easton was unable to deploy an asset like a fire engine because let's say they had multiple runs out, an actual fire, or they were just surged and saturated themselves, common practice is that that telecommunicator would contact the neighboring town with a mutual aid agreement and say, hey, can you help us out? Can you send an engine? That telecommunicator at that point would now need to say, okay, let me look at my assets. Okay, I do have one. Or they could say, we're also saturated and bump into the next town. But let's say they call over to uh, the neighboring town they say, yes, we have an asset. That asset needs to be notified, briefed, and deployed. And at that point, the caller would get their response asset and the help they need. The other issue with wireless direct and why towns are, it's our four towns in particular, are unable to accept wireless direct right now. It's not a technological issue. It's that with wireless direct, there's no goalkeeper. So if 30 people call 911 for a house fire or a car accident, every single one of those callers is getting directly piped into the local 911 center or the, the regional 911 center. At this time, the state police or the uh, wireless center is playing goalkeeper saying, all right, do you have new information? No, okay, thank you, thanks for calling. And only passing through a handful of those calls, one or two versus 30. So in the future, same call, same caller, same geolocation, it's going right to the regional center because we have the Cap, uh, capacity and technology to handle those calls. So we already skipped a step there and reduced our time. So 911, where's your emergency? Same interrogation process, same determination, except now if Easton's saturated, they can't make it. There's no further phone call. I have four towns worth of assets and I can say, okay, Foxborough's available and just send the asset instead of making a phone call or a radio contact and saying, hey, do you have a, a piece of apparatus or a police officer that can be deployed to this, this emergency? So the larger we grow, the more efficient that becomes as well. So just by regionalizing and taking wireless calls direct, we, we reduce the timeline between 911 where's emergency and a piece of apparatus getting to the side of somebody who needs help exponentially. We reduce it by seconds, maybe even minutes. Uh, the other thing is that we have the surge capacity, the depth of staff to accept all those 911 callers, regardless of how many people actually get through. So that's Wireless Direct. This, this next video I don't think is as important, but as you can imagine with all the other technological advancements, the technological advancement with first responders is increasing exponentially. The uh, Department of Homeland Security at the federal level has really uh, championed this program, uh, getting smarter devices, more technologically uh, capable devices in the hands of first responders. Um, which increases our demand to get that, that um, data to them. And since we have the data, it's, it would be really good if we can get it to them and they could actually use it in the field. Uh, so I'm going to skip this video. This is available in, online and uh, in our presentation as well.
So like I said, there's more data receiving, just having smartphones in the hands of first responders has increased their, their capability for uh, receiving data exponentially. Uh, there's more data flowing back from the responders to the, the local 911 center, and uh, that increases the amount of life-saving data we can exchange and increases the efficiency of that collaboration. Um, the pipeline in between, this is another video I'm gonna skip. The pipeline in between, um, there's a more robust pipeline. It's the National uh, Public Safety Broadband Initiative, also known as FirstNet. It's a public-private partnership between AT&T and the federal government and now the, the Commonwealth. Um, it basically sets aside certain spectrum for a uh, public safety enhanced um, cell phone network. Um, so that means that the, the devices on this network are getting priority over any other traffic and preemption, which means they'll bump traffic if something becomes saturated. Like the like a Boston Marathon style incident where the, the network's saturated, everyone's calling them okay, sending text messages and pictures. When that happens, um, first responders were na not able to get through to coordinate their efforts. Um, and that was a lesson learned. The FirstNet system plus Verizon and other competitors are offering similar systems. FirstNet's the official government's answer to this uh, or allowing that to not happen again. Uh, the other thing is it's doing is increasing that pipeline for data to go back and forth and making it more efficient and cost effective. And you can read all about FirstNet online. So what that means is that both sides of the of the aisle of the caller getting data to the 911 center and the 911 center getting data to the first responders and back and forth has increased. We sit right in the middle of that, which means that we have to build a robust, resilient, well-oiled machine of a, a 911 center to kind of sit and pivot all that data. All right, so where are we already? We've taken, over the past seven, eight months, we've taken a bunch of uh, projects under our wing and a couple of initiatives. One of which is taking that next generation 911 system, and we just entered, um, one of the projects was at Gillette Stadium. Each pole at the stadium, we addressed and gave a geotag. So if someone calls 911 in the parking lot, today, before it was implemented, someone would just call and say, I'm in the parking lot. Now we can say, all right, you're closest to pole 1302, send a responder. Uh, we were, I worked closely with the police and fire department at uh, Stonehill College to do the same thing with every building on the campus, right? Uh, six months ago, there was one address for the gate, and that was it. Now we can, we're working on getting an actual address for every building, even if it's a phantom address where just the 911 system sees it and we can correlate a 911 call to a building. Uh, we're working on that. Uh, working on getting mile markers into the computer-aided dispatch system. So if someone calls and we can say, all right, you're on Route 1 at mile marker 106, we can use that and provide a location to the first responders to, that's the addressing system on the highway, since there's no, usually no buildings uh, to get responders to the highway incidents quicker. And we're deploying uh, different apps to, to get that data to first responders in a more streamlined, friendly, uh, user-friendly way. Uh, we're also part, we partnered with Waze. Uh, I could pull any data, I can push data two ways as far as uh, road closures. I can see when car accidents are entered into Waze and that'll be available to um, the telecommunication in the Regional Emergency Communication Center. Waze says that um, this is a, a study conducted by Waze, but Waze uh, study indicated that they'll get a car accident input in, into Waze four to six minutes before someone calls 911. So that's that's pretty impressive. It's also a little scary. Um, <laughs> the other thing we could do is using GIS. Um, we're able to. I, Foxborough asked me to to help them out with um, highlighting the hotspots of where their calls are in their in their town. 
and we're able to use GIS, pull data out with the new CAD that we're deploying throughout the district and plot and see where their, their hotspots for calls are. And even filter that down to how many medical emergencies versus automatic fire alarms or carbon monoxide emergencies. Is that uh, Red Spot Gillette? No, actually, it's their, uh, this is like the town center. This oh, is really? Gillette up here. Uh, I've developed uh, a dashboard for Bristol County Fire where you can see at uh, fire assets. It's not deployed yet, it's a prototype, but be able to see fire assets and mutual aid statuses throughout the entire Bristol County Fire uh, area. And then there's different applications. We're working with FirstNet, uh, beta testing certain applications and uh, challenging their network standards and working with them to improve that, prove it out. Uh, the district is already a National Weather Service ambassador, which means we've committed to the National Weather Service that we will champion um, weather-related safety uh, products and work with them. Uh, this is in, in partnership with the Storm Ready Community Program, uh, which aims to build safety in regarding uh, natural disasters and actually reduces your flood insurance rates. So we've been working with them. They've been great. They're right in Norton. And that's really it for programs. Uh, any questions before we move into the funding grant stuff? No. Excellent. All right, so as a district, or actually as a town, you're eligible for state 911, what's called support and incentive money. So that's the surcharge money that comes off every uh, phone line in the Commonwealth. They pay a surcharge. You probably see it's a dollar right now. Um, so each town is eligible for a certain portion of that to offset the uh, operations of your communication and dispatch center. So collectively, all four towns annually get approximately $190,000. Split pretty much evenly. Easton gets just under $50,000 a year. The day we regionalize and open the new 911 center, that 190 turns into 890. So that's a, it's guaranteed every year, and it actually could increase uh, next year. They're increasing the surcharge to accommodate for another program. And as a regional 911 center, the law stipulates that we get 1% of that total pool of money. So if we look at it over 10 years, the yellow line, the gray line represents if all four towns were to continue as business today, that's the total grant money. So just over 10 years, just about $2 million. The yellow line in the middle represents the, the, the delta between what we'd get and what you would get if you stayed local operations. And that represents approximately $7 million of, of grant money lost. And the top line indicates what we would get as a district, which is just under $9 million over 10 years. So that number is a, a big number for grant money that we would basically let go out of the communities into other communities and other projects. And every time we add a, another town on, the, it's based off call volume population. That number increases. It's proportional to how many towns and how much population you serve. So if we hadn't done anything and we kept every town separate, there was also uh, something that was going to happen where we were going to have to invest in new technology separately that Correct. was going to cost each town on their own about a million dollars. Am I on track? More, More than a million dollars. So that or originally was um, what we heard that you know, was enticing to think, wow, you know, if we do this and we mm -hmm. collaborate, we can save the money. 
Um, the technology part of the presentation was, was pretty good a year ago, but after seeing this technology presentation, I know some of the questions that people had then were, you know, how's a dispatcher in Foxborough going to know how to find my house on a side street in Easton? Right. And so all of this technology and being able to track people, even if they aren't able to tell you where they are, um, it really, it not only is, does it make really good sense financially, but it makes even better sense for your community safety. Um, this is really amazing technology that is going to really help our first responders get people there faster mm -hmm. um, and take care of things a lot more efficiently. Absolutely. Um, and the beautiful thing about these uh, these grant funds is none of it's tax dollars. It's all surcharge money. It's user fees. You use your phone. You pay into the 911 system that you would use by calling by calling 911 on your phone. All right. Now there is a tax portion of our district. We can't just operate off 800, uh, just under $900,000. Um, so this is the current uh, salary and benefits per town. So Easton's paying about 830. I estimated that by using your published um, town report plus 30% guesstimate for benefits. Um, the district is anticipating assessing each town about 580,000 versus your 830. Uh, which rep represents a savings annually that we're we're aiming for as well. So the 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 twenty five percent split between the four towns plus the the grant money and other grants would finance the district. Um, the last portion I, I I had in that presentation was the the building. I don't know if, you, Madam Chair, if you would like me to get into the, the new building or. Sure, you can talk about that briefly. So it's actually just a regular old PowerPoint. So the, the building is kind of the core of our operation. Uh, police departments have police cars and guns and handcuffs, and uh, that, that's, those are the tools of their trade. The fire department has hoses and hydrants and fire trucks. A 911 center has their building and the technology and the people in it. Um, so when we're investing in a building, um, it really is the core of our capabilities. Uh, so we need to be open 24-7. We, we are going to be the single point of all 911 and public safety functions, especially the technology side. And we're going to be the, the host and center point for all the deployed radio technologies. I kind of wrote down just a few of the, the, the cornerstones of, uh, of what we need to, to stand up a facility. Uh, obviously compliance with uh, NFPA 12.1, which is a NFPA standard that says what you need to have in your 911 center. Uh, we need to be secure. We need to have adequate space, power, and all this, anything else you can think of to kind of um, thwart any uh, adversarial conditions like floods, fires, um, natural disaster. The original plan was 50 West Street and, and Mansfield. It's the, the current Mansfield Police Station. It's a great building and it, it would suit us well, um, but it has its own, it has its issues. It's, a, it's an older building, um, nothing unsurmountable, but some things that made me a little leery. Um, so it's a type two and four building, which means it's heavy timber and um, brick. It needs to be reinforced to be brought up to code. Um, it's got a small radio tower and it's in a valley. Um, the other thing is it's owned by Mansfield, which is not a huge issue. It's behind a dam and in a flood zone, which are not ideal conditions for a 911 center. This was kind of the conceptual plan. Uh, due to the, the, the fact that that building needed to be reinforced and brought up to code, there was not a lot of money left over for the actual 911 center. 
Um, so the plan was to get the basically shoehorn us in and say, all right, what do we need today? Build it that way. And if we ever expanded, the plan was to, to have another construction project to, to demo out a piece of the building and expand, which is both expensive and not great for operations. Very doable, but just not ideal. The, the building we found was called High Rock. It's at uh, an area called High Rock. That's where it gets, gets its name from. It's an old AT&T long line site. These buildings were built across the country uh, to carry the long distance telephone and TV signals for everybody, plus some Department of Defense communications. They were built to be resilient that if we were actually engaged in a nuclear conflict, that they would survive and continue that long distance and TV signal, plus the DOD communications. So this building is actually uh, designed to, uh, for Boston to be attacked with a nuclear weapon and survive. It's, it's capable of having a two PSI overpressure, which is immense, and it would cost about $500 million to build today, just the skin. Uh, it's reinforced concrete. It's, it's just in phenomenal shape. It's ugly, but we could fix that. Just because of the graffiti, or? Yeah, it's just ugly <laughs> because of the graffiti, really. Um, it's got a 200-foot tower. Uh, the tower is gigantic. It's, it's got um, horns on the top of it today, which will be removed. The horns are about the size of a uh, small pickup truck to just kind of conceptualize how big they actually are. And once we remove them, we'll, the modern technology and the re equivalent replacement of those is about this big, so we'll have no, uh, no issues with wind loading or ice loading, which is an awesome thing. So as it stands today, it would, we're in the process of closing and negotiating uh, the purchase of that building, which is going to be a, a nominal fee, just enough to record a title. Um, it's unoccupied other than equipment, which is not a huge issue. That was one of the um, issues with the Mansfield facility is that it's a current operating police station, and it's kind of hard to build a 911 center in a police station with the police department operating out of it. It's what's called a type one building, which means it's uh, fire resistant. It's concrete, and that's all it is, concrete and steel. Um, it, the building sits at a 412 foot elevation. It's got a 200 foot super heavy duty tower and it's got all on-site utilities except for electric. So with the generator, we'll be able to generate all our utilities on-site on if we ever had to do that. So we can skip through this stuff. Uh, this is one of the most compelling features of the building. So I'm not an artist. This is my representation of Mansfield, and this is High Rock. Um, this to a rough scale represents the tip of the antenna tower at Mansfield, and it's about 200 feet below the basement of High Rock. So for deploying a radio system, this is huge in uh, deploying a radio system and, and doing it efficiently and cost-effectively. Um, it's actually, we're, we're in the planning phase of using it for a Bristol County-wide deployment of a public safety radio system, and this was one of the uh, two key sites to making that happen just because of its height and capacity. So just some rough uh, theoretical engineering studies. Uh, th this is a GIS poll of the elevation between uh, High Rock and the coast. As you can see, High Rock is pretty, pretty much the tallest thing until we get to the coast in uh, West, Westport. Um, this is a radio coverage map, uh, theoretical. This green indicates the coverage area of High Rock. And you could actually see it poking through back here. So it covers a large portion of the district. We'd have to build in some fill-in radio sites just to make it a robust system. But 
this is uh, a comparison, Mansfield versus High Rock for microwave line of sight. The green and red shows that uh, a link is, uh, it's capable of, a, uh, of hosting a link just based on terrain plus 100 feet for trees. So this is High Rock versus Mansfield's capability. Again, it's pretty uh, <coughs> incredible. Uh, this is High Rock's flood zone analysis. It's not in a flood zone, it's the highest thing around. And this is Mansfield's, which is an issue. Again, it would be um, okay, it would be feasible to actually host a PSAP there, but these are just risks that if we can avoid them, it's just better to avoid them. Um, and it's, this is a concern that's come up a few times. It is on private property now, which will be deeded to the district. Once that deal is done, it's on about six acres. It is contiguous to the, uh, the state forest, but it has access roads and um, that would be our six acres. So this is the property line for the actual building. And like I said, it's ugly, um, but it'll be clad in a, an insulating uh, outside paneling system. Um, this building at the end of the day, when we're, when we're complete with the project, um, it will be pretty close to being uh, net zero, which means we can generate just as much as electricity as we um, would use. So our electricity bills and our heating bills would be very, very low. It's a very efficient building just because of the, the nature of the building and the, the thickness of the concrete and the insulating panels. Uh, we're planning on using uh, solar panels on the roof to kind of offset those costs as well. And this just goes into the history of the building. It is, uh, it's incredible. A lot of history here too. This building has been serving the public for, at least this land has been serving the public since the Cold War before. It's one of the first uh, radar sites in the country, radar in general. Um, just some old pictures from inside. Um, another one of our plans is to remove this older section of the building. Uh, just, we, it, it's a big enough building where we can cut that chunk off, we would probably never use it. So increase our, reduce our uh, square footage we need to heat and cool um, and reduce our cost. The cost to knock it down was somewhere in the neighborhood of $25 a square foot. The roof is about $50 a square foot on top of it. So it's cheaper to just knock that portion of the building down. And it increases our permeable soils and parking areas, all that kind of stuff. So you're not gonna uh, build out the whole, uh, the whole, building you're gonna save some of that for future expansion or uh, so the, the plan the the conceptual plan right now is to build the what we need for what we need now plus what we anticipate in the next 10 years uh, so I my goal is to never have a construction project ever again and if we need to expand that we build a console position versus a, a new 911 center so an expansion of a town, if we need to add four desks, would be under $100,000 versus millions of dollars. Um, so we're, we're gonna, the, the top floor of the buildings, uh, I believe just over, uh, just about 15,000 square feet, and we're gonna use less than half of that and uh, temper and mothball the other half. And if we need to expand or we can co-locate with a, a partner, that would be something we can look into. That's great. So I would imagine there's some interest by other communities at this point, or? There are, there's uh, four right now that are interested. Uh, we've kind of taken the position, let's get it open and then we can talk, um, but without souring any relationships. But there's definitely an interest. This building has been a huge uh, attractor of communities saying, all right, you guys are doing it right. Let's, we're gonna go into regional center. We're gonna be required to go into regional center. Let's do it with these guys. So that's a huge compliment too. 
Well, it sounds like you're developing a good set of best practices so, you know, other communities that haven't done this regionalization would be able to learn a lot from what we're doing. That's what we're hoping. They probably won't all be able to find a building like that. No, but. this is uh, <laughs> for these type buildings in the Commonwealth, and this is the only one that's really available right now, so there's no one else that's going to have a building like this. It's a great find. Yeah, it really is. So. Anybody have any questions? Um, what is the timeline? So it's, we're looking to open a next fiscal year at some point. We'll have a firmer idea of where that is in the fiscal year once the grant for this fiscal year is released. Um, as soon as that happens, we can really push out a timetable and, and get to get going on it. Um, we're working with the state 91 department. They've had a, this development grant out for um, seven years now, um, and we've, we're working with them to deploy it in a different strategy with us to reduce that timetable. And they've actually started, we gave them our idea and said, hey, let's try this for next year. And they've actually went back to other communities and say, hey, could you guys comply with this model this year? So we're hoping that that uh, reduces our time frame and reduces time frames in other communities as well. Well, that's great. Well, welcome aboard. Thank and, you. And uh, we really appreciate you guys have done a lot of great work uh, in a short time. So appreciate it. Thank you. Um, thank you. I'm very excited to see this move forward. Me too. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you do the chiefs, do you, either of you want to make any comments or? Great. Excellent. <laughs> well, I think it, I think. Yeah, where's the microphone? Chief, sorry, could you? <clears throat> Gary Sullivan, the police chief, I won't take up much of your time. I just want to say that I, I sat on the, the interview board when we were looking at a number of uh, applicants for this position that was offered to Rob. I consider us very lucky, very fortunate to have him on board as the executive director. He's done outstanding work and has made a lot of progress in a short amount of time. So kudos to him. That's, that's Thank it. You, Thank you. And Thanks, I think chief. even after our meeting in Mansfield, um, to see the, you know you interacting with your peers, um, everybody has very high regard for each other, and I think you briefly mentioned that. Um, you know, it's it's not a, some towns don't even have people that get along within their own department heads. So to do that amongst uh, this group of towns is really it's it's really amazing, and uh, I think it's great. So thank you. Thank you very much. Just, thank you. Thank you. Okay. Next up is approval for the collector to include municipal information regarding early voting in the property tax mailing. Sure. So attached in your packet uh, or in the notes, you'll see um, under general laws, it's required technically that if there's an informational uh, kind of flyer uh, or mail stuffer, for lack of a better word, that's going to go in any kind of uh, tax or uh, bill uh, being sent by the collectors at the selectmen, okay that first. Um, and. So that's what I'm asking uh, for the board to do tonight. There's a, there's a draft attachment. This is basically uh, just a, a little helpful uh, flyer from the town clerk's office, uh, uh, helping folks understand their uh, options for availing themselves of their uh, right to vote in the November election. It's nonpartisan. It is only beneficial. Uh, it includes a, a notice of where early voting uh, is available this year, so that's something that will actually be relevant to the special town meeting piece next as far as when special town meeting would be, but 
Um, there will be early voting again for the state elections. So the state elections, November 6th, there's going to be early voting um, for two weeks uh, available before that election. So it's not like absentee. You don't need a, you know, you don't need to say that you're out of the state. Uh, you can just simply come and cast your ballot uh, when it's convenient for you. Um, it'll be available at Frobingham Hall and at the Town Hall. And uh, this flyer basically just makes that information very easy for everyone to get. Uh, it'd be put in the water bill that's about to be sent. So there's also a, a cool uh, QR code there, but if somebody scans that with their phone, it will bring them right to the um, Secretary of the Commonwealth's website so that they can make sure their voter status is active and um, get information as far as what precinct they're in to save time so that when they show up to the polls, whether they uh, choose to do so traditionally on election day or they would like to avail themselves of the two early voting options we have, uh, they know what precinct they're in, they're ready to get in, cast for ballot and leave. So. Technology. Technology. It's good stuff. Anybody have any questions or comments? I think it's excellent. Yeah, great idea. Yeah, good idea. I wonder if this will, uh, we'll have to start kind of looking at, see if it increases voter turnout. It would probably be hard to track, but if it even gets one more person uh, to vote, then I think that's great. Um, it also is coupled with, this is one of my favorite parts of my job, is I learn these things that department heads are doing on, uh, just on their own through their own best practices. Council on Aging under Director Kennedy uh, uh, makes uh, Council on Aging uh, buses available for any uh, older folks in town or people who may have uh, difficulty with transportation to get picked up and be brought to uh, a polling location if they can't get there. Uh, so doing what we can, uh, again, obviously in a nonpartisan way to make it as, as doable as possible for people to exercise their right to vote. So that's great. That's good stuff. Excellent. So we, do we have to vote on this? Yes, uh, I would just ask that you vote to approve the mailer. Okay. Please. Would someone like to make a motion? So moved. Second. All in favor? Great. Unanimous. Thank you. Great, thank you. Um, and next up is the opening of the special town meeting warrant. Sure, so this is uh, bittersweet because it means that summer is almost over, uh, but I, I'm proposing that the board consider uh, opening the warrant for a special town meeting to be held on uh, a Tuesday on October 30th at 7 p.m. in the Oliver Ames High School. Um, the, traditionally, for a special town meeting, the, this office would accept warrant articles from boards, committees, department heads for uh, just a little over three weeks. So I'd propose that the warrant be open until September 18th. Um, so. Okay. So this fall, we've had a lot of uh, holidays and unusual uh, dates, and it's hard to schedule. Right. So, so I'm proposing October 30th for a couple of reasons. Um, I did just allude to early voting, which is great. However, it does uh, somewhat uh, encumber the clerk's office staff. So those, by law, those early voting hours have to be during um, the office hours of the town hall is open. So that's through 7.30 at night on the two Mondays before uh, the election, so that's Monday, uh, October 22nd and 29. Uh, then the next available Monday would be November 5th, that's the night before the state election. Again, that's um, clerk's office will kind of be working uh, around the clock on that. The following Monday, the 12th, is the observance of Veterans Day, so uh, municipal offices are closed. And then the next available Monday is the 19th, uh, which is the week of Thanksgiving and uh, truthfully is also very close to what my wife and I are expecting. Uh, it is my obligation to be available and be at town meeting. Um, so that's why I'm proposing a date that's a little bit earlier than last year, but uh, doable with our finance team as far as certification of new growth and free cash. 
um, and workable with the uh, clerk's office. Great. I've checked the moderator, town council, finance committee are available. Okay, sounds good. Well, thank you and congratulations. Thank you. All right, um, so next up, well, do we have to, oh yes, we do, we have yes. a motion here. Um, I propose that the selectmen open the warrant for a special town meeting to be held on Tuesday, October 30th at 7 o'clock p.m. in the Oliver Ames High School Auditorium. I am proposing that warrant articles be submitted to the town administrator's office no later than September 18th, 2018. Second. Any questions? All in favor? Unanimous. Great, thank you. Yes. Okay, next we have uh, general minutes. So we have a slate of minutes. Uh, Connor, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Sure. So uh, earlier last week, I sent um, a combined document of uh, about a dozen or so minutes, general board minutes, uh, ranging from September through April. Um, this is just quite frankly a backlog that occurred in my office due to the staff changeovers that were occurring between uh, the onboarding of a new assistant, my hiring, uh, and bringing in an assistant town administrator all within that time frame. Um, so uh, we've been working uh, to get these all caught up. Um, I would recommend uh, that unless the board had any changes that they needed to know, that uh, you would consider approving them as a slate with the one uh, correction that Craig Barger did catch that on, um, I believe, October 12th on a March vote, 12th. Sorry, March 12th, uh, 2018, there was a vote to appoint, uh, I believe, Benjamin Carroll to the Board of Registrars. Uh, so, um, an alternative motion compared to the slate that you saw would be to uh, accept those minutes, uh, the general minutes. September 6, 2017 through April 23, 2018, uh, amending those March 12th minutes that Benjamin Carroll's appointment should read to the Board of Registrars rather than the Town Democratic Committee. You got all that? I got all that. Yep. I got it right here. Got it. You want to make the motion? Sure. The motion to approve the slate of general minutes with dates ranging from September 6, 2017 to April 23, 2018 is referenced on the agenda with the following amendment to the March 12, 2018 general minutes, Benjamin Carroll's appointment, reappointment should read to the Board of Registrars. Can I get a second? Second. Any questions? All in favor? Unanimous. And then we have two other sets of minutes, uh, July 25th. Can I get a motion to accept the July 25th meeting, so meeting minutes? Second. second. Oops, Tom and Chuck, um, all in favor? And then the August 6th meeting minutes. I make a motion to approve the August 6th meeting minutes as well. Second. All in favor? Unanimous. Does it make a difference if we say motion to approve versus motion to accept? Because really we're just accepting the minutes, not approving them. Uh, it doesn't make a functional difference. I actually did go and dig around because I was curious. Um, the Attorney General's guidance on open meeting law is that uh, the manner and method in which boards accept or approve minutes is largely, but open meeting law is lar silent largely on that, so it's deferential to the board. Okay, so, great. Um, and then we have executive session minutes dated July 23rd, and I will entertain a motion to accept the minutes but not to release. So moved. Second. All in favor? Unanimous. All right. 
Um, no public participation. Town Administrator notes. Sure. So I just wanted to note a couple of uh, things. Um, Saturday, uh, I was able to uh, attend along with what looked like well over 100 people, I think, uh, the uh, opening ceremony for Alley's Park uh, on Pine Street, which was a really um, beautiful event. Uh, it was great to see the Hamilton family there and um, just so many uh, different uh, groups from Easton, CPA, recreation, uh, neighbors, uh, contractors, people who helped out. It's it's a beautiful park, beautiful work, and uh, it's really um, heartening to see the, the great work that was done there. So that was a, a great, great event. Um, also, I, I sent an email to the board last week. There's been a press release about it. Um, the chief and I have been working with superintendents over the summer after a town meeting uh, to continue to explore uh, what our options were and how we can sustain a school resource officer program. That's a conversation that uh, garnered a lot of attention during the budget cycle. Um, I am uh, very happy that we've been able to work something out where we'll, we are going to preserve what was the pilot program last year to share one officer uh, for now uh, between the regional school and the public schools. Um, that'll be Officer Aker. Uh, he'll be starting this week. Um, so we're, we're very excited about that. Um, and I just wanted to let the board know that the police chief will be doing a departmental update uh, at your next meeting on September 17th to do a more kind of thorough uh, explanation of that program as well as some of the other great work that the police department's doing. Uh, so that's, that's great. Thank you. I know we were all advocating for that and uh, hoping you'd be able to find a way to make that happen. So I know I appreciate that and I'm sure the rest of the board does too. Mm, Absolutely. Great to keep working the problem. Okay. Anybody else have any other comments or? I'd just point out that the uh, 40th annual Harvest Road Race is September uh, 23rd and that people can sign up for that. It's uh, put on by the Easton YMCA, sponsored by the Northeastern Savings Bank, uh, and it goes to support the Live Strong program at the YMCA. Uh, and They do a, a lot of good. Um, there's a 5K walk, uh, 5K run, 10K run, so there's a lot of options to engage. Very family-friendly event. A um, lot of engagement there, so uh, I encourage people to check it out. Go to the Easton YMCA website and get further details. Great. And I just wanted to mention that the um, MSBA project for the Center School is moving along uh, very well and that um, I attended um, two meetings recently in Boston with um, a representative from the school committee, uh, Jane Martin, the, um, and also she's the chair of the school building committee, and also David Twombly, who is the operations person. Um, our first meeting was to evaluate four proposals by designers and then down select it to who we wanted to interview to choose for a designer. And then the second meeting that we just had about a week ago was to uh, interview the designers and vote. So it's a pretty um, regimented process. There's about 16 people on the committee that the MSBA has. Uh, it was very stressful actually to do the interviews and select. Um, it's a big deal. Mm -hmm. So we are very, very pleased um, with the group that we selected and uh, they're already hard at work. So there'll be formal updates, but I just wanted to update 
that. And speaking of school, this is the week we're going to hear all kinds of cheering throughout the whole town. And it, <laughs> right. it's going to be all the kids cheering to go back to school or mm. the parents cheering that the kids are going back to school. So good luck to all our students and uh, make it a great year. All said. Anybody else? Motion to adjourn. So moved. Second. All in favor? Unanimous. Great. Thank you, everyone. Mm -hmm.